Yes, hello folks, welcome to the weekly Global Football Show. I'm your host as always, Phil Brown. Join with my regular fantastic co-host here, Zach Lowy from Breaking the Lines. Uh, if you haven't checked this guy out, follow him at Zach Lowy or at BTL. Uh, there is an absolute feast of information on that BTL. Um, that is, I was reading your stuff about Ron's, or uh, Ren's, how do you spell it? How do you say that Re- properly? Ren. Ren. <laughs> about their fantastic young talent. Um, so, uh, Zach is always here to refine my cultural ignorance uh, when it comes to other languages. But in all seriousness, Zach, uh, it is something that irritates me when it's not done right. It should be an attempt to do it right. Um, my family, my, my, my in-laws are Hispanic, and I can only tell you how annoying and cringy it is to them when English commentators say, Martinez, um, or any commentator saying Martinez. Um, so it is something that matters, I suppose. But first of all, how you doing, my friend? Doing very well, Phil. Glad to be back on the podcast. Really excited. We've got lots to talk about today. We sure do uh, as we go on the air. Unai Emery has gone to Villa, so I'm going to get you your opinion on Unai Emery. I'm going to vent a little bit about some of that. Um, We'll talk about Mourinho and Roma. Of course, Roma Napoli game was something to behold. Uh, had everything you would expect. <laughs> uh, and we'll talk about the fantastic form of Napoli. Uh, I'll get your opinion on Victor Osman because uh, excellent, excellent striker. Of course, scored a great goal the weekend. Uh, we'll talk about the Ronaldo issue. Uh, we'll ask about is Jose Mourinho reinventing himself as the way all great managers who've got longevity have done. We may see a new iteration of Jose Mourinho, which I think we've been seeing for a while. Um, but we'd start with the Unai Emery thing. So he's going to go to Aston Villa. And I'm going to get this out of the way for a second, and then I'm going uh, <clears> to <throat> say to your, your analysis on him, one of the things that I really don't want to see, and some, some people listening to this may not understand this issue. If you've ever lived abroad, you'll understand this issue. When your accent is mocked by people, okay, it's almost always done as an insult. Whether you think it's funny or not, it's not funny. It's extremely hurtful. It's one of the most hurtful things that's been done to me. Because it's usually done by people who take issue with foreigners. Because those who don't, those who embrace diversity don't single out differences as something to be mocked. And this isn't just your average arsehole doing this, by the way. This is people like Alison Rudd, high-end journalists who done this to Eric Ten Hag, who said, made fun of his accent, who, who singled it out as an issue, his, his vocabulary, his lexicon. And this is not analogous to what Joey Barton or Steve McLaren did because they tried to make French and Dutch sound English. They weren't trying to speak a foreign language, totally different. So I sincerely, sincerely hope that the people who shape football culture, such as journalists and broadcasters, make an effort to not do this, to make an effort to push back on this and to make an effort to call it out for what it is because it's got serious bigoted overtones to it. And I know how it feels to have that done. I make an effort to speak Spanish out here. My Spanish is far from perfect. Zach, you're a polyglot, you speak other languages. I don't know how to speak Spanish without my accent being a part of it. And I don't remember choosing my accent. Did you choose yours? No. So how we speak the elocution and the regional influences on how we speak isn't a choice. It just happens. Just like when your accent evolves when you live abroad. It just happens. You don't even notice it. So I'm, I'm, I have a serious hard time with this because it really bothers me. It's not funny. And if you do it, I'm telling you it's not funny. And if I'm asking too much for you to not mock another man's accent, then maybe you want to take a bit of a look at yourself for and ask why? Why is it so important to you to have the right to mock another human being and how they speak? This isn't being a snowflake. I'm quite certain if someone mocked your regional accent and mocked the way you speak, eventually you take issue with it. 
when you've got hundreds of thousands of people doing this, it's absolutely unacceptable. So hopefully that is not a part of public discourse when Unai Emery takes this Aston Villa job. Zach, I'll hand my time back to you and you can go ahead and tell me exactly what Villa fans should expect uh, with Unai Emery. I think this is a really interesting appointment for Aston Villa. It was only a year ago that he was in conversations to take the Newcastle position. I ended up rejecting that and decided to stay at Villarreal. But you have to remember that he was uh, contesting the Champions League and would end up leading them to a berth in the Champions League semifinals. Uh, yeah, so look, in terms of European achievements, Unai Emery is 100% one of the best managers uh, in Europe over the past decade, leading Sevilla to three consecutive Europa League titles, leading Villarreal to a Europa League title, and even at a club like Arsenal, which was probably his lowest uh, moment, um, leading them to a Europa League final. Uh, I think, you know, he has done a fantastic job in that regard. But my biggest concern here is not so much his adaptation to the Premier League, because he's shown that he can cope with that, but more so his adaptation to a team fighting relegation. I can't remember the last time. Uh, he had to deal with that, whether that was at Valencia, Lokomotiv, Moscow, uh, Sevilla, and his other positions. Um, he did obviously have to dig himself out of some trouble at Villarreal last season. But uh, overall, I think that it's it's definitely a different time, a different moment to leave, right? Uh, last season, you had the Champions League going on. You didn't want to, uh, you know, he would not have wanted to abandon the team midway through. Now you get the feeling that it's perhaps the end of the cycle. Uh, El Submarino Amarillo uh, currently sitting seventh in the La Liga table. And overall, I think it would be a great way uh, to end his time at the club, considering the events of the past weekend, which would see Villarreal uh, equalize in, I believe, the 65th minute via Alex Baena, who lifted up his shirt to pay homage to uh, this uh, vice president who recently passed away, uh, Yanesa, someone who was absolutely crucial in engineering Villarreal's rise over the past 30 years of the club. And, you know, a great tribute. Not taking, not taking off his shirt, just lifting it up. He got a second yellow for that. For me, I don't know what your thoughts are. Oh, that's ridiculous. But, but for me, that was absolutely disgraceful. I get it, rules are rules, but he did not take off his full shirt. And they still found the need to send him off. Nevertheless, Villarreal prevailing, holding on with 10 men and winning 2-1 with an extra time goal from Nicholas Jackson. So if he does leave, which it is becoming uh, increasingly certain that he will, not a bad way to end his time at El Submarino Amarillo. Well, let me ask you this, Zach. Villarreal, 14 goals scored, 7 goals against. What type of coach are Aston Villa getting? Are they getting a guy that's going to play on the front foot? Is he someone that's adapted his tactics to the personnel that he has at Villarreal? I mean, he's done a fantastic job. He's worth really saying he had in the Champions League uh, last season. He's done an excellent job um, and, and, and you know overachieved with that football club, no question. But 14 goals, 7 games. If I'm a Villa fan, do I, should I read much into that? Real Betis are ex almost identical. They have 14 goals in 8 games. Which of course, Pellegrini's there. And uh, I would not say Pellegrini's a defensive coach. Um, what should they expect from him that's different from Steven Gerrard? Listen, I, I definitely think you can expect an upgrade uh, over Steven Gerrard. I think he just appeared so out of his depth in his year uh, at Aston Villa. Unai Emery... He's someone who, okay, he didn't take the Premier League by storm uh, in his time at Arsenal, but he's still a proven winner at the European stage. And he's someone who I think is definitely going to shore up an Aston Villa defense that has really been uh, so leaky. You know, he's shown that he can shore up a defense uh, both at Arsenal as well as Sevilla, Villarreal, Valencia. So he's shown that he can have longevity. So look, I'm surprised that they went with Unai Emery. I actually considered them uh, as a team likely to approach Mauricio Pochettino. I believe they had an approach for Thomas Tuchel uh, turned down. But 
Um, it's it's an interesting one, but at the same time, I do think that Emery recognized that he was reaching the end of the cycle, and if he didn't leave now in, with the team in seventh, uh, you know, perhaps there was a threat of leaving at the end of the season with team ninth or so. Um, I do think that, you know, it is fair to say Villarreal have been one of the biggest underachievers in La Liga this season. They do have a squad uh, that is full of young talent. Um, you know, you do have a few proven players like Arnaut Danjuma and Francis Coquelin, Dani Parejo. But overall, just a lot of young players who have shown plenty of potential, whether that's Nicholas Jackson or uh, Alex Baena. But players who are nevertheless adapting to the role. So I do think that it is definitely a transitional season. And uh, as such, Emery recognizes that he is approaching the end of an era at Villarreal. Um, so yeah, it is definitely an interesting move for Aston Villa. I do think that um, he, is, he is definitely going to improve their fortunes defensively. In attack is where I have more of my concerns, though, because the Aston Villa, mm-hmm. their attacking options have been, for me, kind of one-dimensional uh you know do you play danny ings or ollie watkins at the same time you know do you play one or the other and looking at their options on the flanks you don't see as many game changers as you would like um so look with that being said this is a squad that have plenty of talent and that should be uh avoiding relegation and you know finishing mid-table i do think that emory has what it takes to get them out of this funk and uh, lead them to safety. Well, I, I mean, it'll, it'll lead them to safety. It'll be next season, really, where he will be in his period where he's going to get held to standards, which then brings the question, what he did at Villarreal, where he has him around seventh, is it realistic to expect Aston Villa to be higher than seventh? I mean, I, I don't know if it is. And so I think that would, if he could do similar, I mean, Villa's a fantastic football club, massive football club, no question about it. Um, it's not, I'm not saying anything pejorative about Villa, I'm just saying that the other six teams above them are, are hard to catch if you're an Aston Villa. Um, so I, I, I like Emery, I think he's a very, very, very good coach. I th- actually think in hindsight, when you look back at his Arsenal job, he'd done a decent job there, I think. You know, I, I mean, you look at you look at uh, Mikel Arteta. I mean, Arteta got a lot longer than Emery, and it really didn't start coming together. I mean, the start of last season, Arsenal fans wanted Arteta sacked. It really didn't start coming together to this season. Um, so, and, he, and I think Arteta was given a lot more money, but we shall see what happens there. Um, I do think just that, Phil. I do think that Arsenal fans they're not going to be as likely to accept the kind of defensive counter-attacking football that sure. Ashbury likes to play, whereas Aston Villa, okay, they'd, they'd be fine with that. You know, what What in identity did Aston Villa even have under Steven Gerrard? I'm not sure mm-hmm. you could answer that question. So for me, Phil, that's going to be the biggest question for uh, Unai Emery as he returns to the Premier League. Can he establish an identity with this Aston Villa team? Struggled to do so at Arsenal um, and overall, when you look at the managers that have sunk or swam, the, the ones that are surviving are the ones that are, you know, establishing an identity, such as Graham Potter at Brighton. Fantastic. Uh, that coach. is going to be a really big question for me. Yeah, he's a fantastic coach, really is. Um, I thought he showed his qualities in the game against United, uh, where he made those tactical adjustments. And uh, halfway through 30 minutes, 35 minutes into the game, taking Kukurea off, putting Kovacic on, and really brought Chelsea back into the game as a result of that tactical adjustment. Let's evolve the conversation forward to our friend Cristiano Ronaldo. Never in his career has he been in the situation that he's been in now, where he's a man without a country, he's a man without a love, or home, he's a man without love. Um, Arguably, one of the greatest players ever to play the game is in a situation where I think the kids say his mouth is writing checks that his body can't cash or his ass can't cash anymore. Um, We've talked about him briefly on the show before, and we talked about him a week or two ago where you said there was some discussion in Portugal about not even bringing him to the World Cup. 
He's now being made to train with the under-23s. We'll start here. What does that do for Ronaldo's World Cup? Listen, I think that these past few months have been a really humbling experience for Cristiano Ronaldo. When you look at the summer, expressing his desire to leave Manchester United and join a Champions League team, and yet having no interest whatsoever. So many teams politely decline. And when you look at this season, the fact is he has been given opportunities to, you know, earn back Eric Ten Hag's trust and, and play in the Europa League. And he really hasn't been able to uh, do anything with that, Phil. You know, I, I look at these, I watch these United games, and it's honestly like, I don't want to be rude, but it's honestly like it's a charity case. Like it's a make-a-wish. Like the teammates on United <laughs> are doing, are, are focusing more on giving Ronaldo the ball so that he can score and get his confidence up as opposed to scoring the goal. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember watching, I think it was against Ammonia or another um, Europa yeah, match where Diogo Dalot had a beautiful chance for a 1v1 and decided to give it to Ronaldo, who completely flatters, fluffs the chance. So look, when you look at the fact that neither, uh, you know, none of these Champions League teams decided to take a shot on him, when you look at the fact that mm-hmm. Eric Ten Hag has become the first coach in, you know, how many years? I think the first coach ever to bench Cristiano Ronaldo and to kick him out of the first team squad. You know, I'm not sure if that has ever happened. You know, those two things are are absolutely uh, massive game changers for a player's confidence. And I think the biggest thing uh, is looking at the performances. Cristiano, I believe, has scored... Two goals this season, if I'm not mistaken. Scored one oh. against Everton, and uh, trying to think when the other one was. Go ahead, but yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's a minimal. They've been f- few and far between. And look, oh, he scored a penalty. That's right, he scored a penalty. Right. Yes. Oh, wait, I didn't see you. So That's you right. know, look, he remains one of the greatest players in football history. Mm-hmm. And as poor as these performances have been. There is a part of me that's, you know, kind of wondering, all right, when is the real Ronaldo going to wake up and, you know, save the day uh, like he always has and, you know, and go to the World Cup? Because, frankly, this is going to be his final World Cup, whether he likes it uh, or not. The fact is, he is he is not going to be a good enough footballer to dispute, in my opinion, the 2024 Euros or the 2026 World Cup. So uh, this is really his last chance to do anything. Um, and, and yeah, you look at his career, 2006, uh, losing in the semifinals, if I'm not mistaken, 2010 and 2014, not you know, doing far worse, 2018 losing to Uruguay in the round of 16, uh, really his last chance to win the only trophy that has eluded him so far. So overall, been a really stressful few weeks for him. Uh, but right now, what he needs to do is apologize to his teammates, apologize to Eric Ten Hag for acting like a spoiled child and marching off uh, for not getting a substitute appearance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he needs to, you know, be humble, train with the U21s. I don't know how much longer his suspension is going to last. And, you know, he needs to accept that he is not the same player as he once was. Uh, and he's going to have to adapt in many ways yeah. to, to meet the needs. So, yeah. So, I'm looking at Ronaldo, and maybe you can't advise him. Maybe Ronaldo is such a massive icon that even if you advise him, he's going to do his own thing anyway. Because if I was to assume that he was actually being advised to do what he's doing, I'd find it astonishing. Because even if he hadn't put this transfer request in in the summer it's still been exactly the same position he's in now for exactly the same reason, because he isn't good enough anymore. And so I'm trying to understand how any of this helps him, because when you're a potential club that wants to bring on Ronaldo, and you're going, if he's doing this at Manchester United, what's to say he isn't doing it, he won't do it with us? He's divisive in the dressing room. Um... I don't know how healthy it is for him to be training with young players with that attitude. If you're a potential buyer of Ronaldo, you're going, well, we're going to have to pay him exorbitant amounts of money for what? 
for a reputation that his ability is no longer commensurate with. I, a player that you have to look back to last season, you know, because you can't look at anything this season. I mean, United are crying out for a striker, crying out for one. So if he can't get in Manchester United's team, a team that badly needs a, a goal scorer, um, my question is, why would any top club take him? I mean, Ruben Amarim threatened to resign if he was brought back. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, who would want to pay Ronaldo more money than you're paying anyone else in the changing room and know that everything must be customised to his happiness or he does this? He, threw, he, he has no regard for the fans that sing his name every week. I mean, he does when he signs because it's convenient. But when it actually comes down to making personal sacrifices, well, that's a different thing altogether. Where's the respect for those fans that sang his name? They sang his name after he said he was treated like a slave, after he demanded to leave. They still sang his name, sang his name for longer than Real Madrid fans did when he was at Real Madrid. Came back, fans worshipped him. He couldn't even shake the hand, slap, give a high five to a child walking down the tunnel. And I'm going, he doesn't deserve the love that he gets. Who doesn't return it? It, it, it? I mean, brilliant player that he is, and maybe his personality is what makes him that way. But to me, if I'm a potential buyer, I, I don't know why you would bring Ronaldo to your team. Listen, I think that the diva personality and these theatrics, they aren't necessarily new to Ronaldo, I, although they have reached, for sure, a climax in the recent weeks under Eric Ten Hag. Um, what is new is people are watching Cristiano Ronaldo and asking themselves the question, what does he provide as a footballer? You know, you put him at center forward and he's constantly offsides because he's not, he doesn't have the awareness or, uh, urgency to get back onside. And as a result, he constantly forces teams to, uh, his his own team to go back and not have as much of an effective press. He doesn't really do any work off the ball. He doesn't have the physicality or speed anymore to win foot races with opposing defenders. He can't really hold up the ball under pressure. Um, I'll admit that he does have some use against deep blocks on occasion, and you know can be used to hold up the ball. But overall, is nowhere near the same effective goal scorer that we have seen in recent years. So, yeah, this is a really big few months for Cristiano Ronaldo. He has a month where he, you know, needs to get at least a, a slither of re- semi-regular football under Eric Tenog. I don't think that he's, he's not going to. Sorry, what was that? He's not getting it, and that's why I don't understand well, why he did this. Yeah, and I do not expect him to be included in the starting lineup at the expense of others. I could see him getting rotated in for potentially some remaining cup fixtures, but overall, I don't think there's any doubt that uh, he is headed for a January departure, and that's going to be really interesting. You see, you know, does he try to remain in Europe? Does he go somewhere like MLS, like Asia, where, you know, he will be the head of a franchise? I know he had an offer from a Saudi team, I believe that was actually the only or one of the only offers that he received in the summer of 2022. Mm. Um, yeah. And that's but, another thing. Like, surely George Mendes would have known this. Surely George Mendes would have sat Ronaldo down. I mean, it's George Mendes' responsibility to bring offers to Manchester United. This is not a computer game. You don't put someone up for sale and then you get an offer. You go, you tell the agent, okay, bring me an offer. We'll look at it. Then it's his job to go do that. So if you look at the end of the season... And when Ronaldo put that transfer request in, a lot happened between them. So he gave an interview July 1st, I think it was, and said how excited he was to work under Ten Hag. And then a couple of weeks later, says he's desperately miserable, desperately wants to leave because United didn't qualify for the Champions League, which is confusing to me. Did he not know that July 1st? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, was that this all of a sudden come as a surprise to him? And then you're looking at George Mendes and going, why didn't George Mendes sit him down and go, listen, we don't have any serious interest here. I honestly think that Todd Bowley told 
George Mendes, the Chelsea, will buy him. And then found out after he had an issue with Thomas Tuchel. And that prompted Ronaldo to put a transfer request in. I honestly think that's what happened, and I still think that maybe Todd Bowley is dangling that carrot in front of him for January. Um, but I caution Chelsea fans uh, because he will do exactly the same. And you know, he just played Chelsea at the weekend. I would have been happy if Ronaldo had been playing against me rather than over me, right? Rather than a mobile striker that's still in his physical prime, as I'm quite confident. Varane, Lindelof and Martinez would have handled a static Cristiano Ronaldo. You give him a chance in the back, he'd score goals, he can still play football. You know, but you sacrifice a lot to accommodate him. I also would have loved how easy it would have been for our defence to play from the back with a striker that does impress. The striker that, you know, I've defended Ronaldo and I think you know, Roy Keane has come out and uh, vociferously defended him, but I don't think Roy Keane's the best person to talk to or ask about this. Roy Keane also left a football club in a similar situation in acrimonious circumstances, which he still has issues over. And there's some similarities in how these two greats coming to the end of their careers are reluctant to accept that you're not in your physical prime. And this, <laughs> this is hard. Trust me, you'll find out, young man. When you age, you don't age mentally, you age physically. And um, life feels like you're dead at 21, 22. But you soon realise when you can't get off a couch without squeaking, that physically you're not going to see him. Um, and so I think, honestly, that Cristiano Ronaldo, um, I think that that Chelsea move was probably promised to him by Todd Bowley. And in the end, it, it, it didn't happen. But... I could probably see him go there in January, and I think United would be relieved to get rid of him. I I don't think there's any chance of Chelsea going. You think so? Absolutely not. Look, the fact is, Phil, he just isn't that good of a footballer anymore. Right? Todd Bowley knows agree. it. Graham Potter knows it. I just don't see any serious club making an offer for him. Uh, yes, he is still one of the most marketable athletes in all of sports. The fact is, is the, what does he provide? on the football pitch you know that's my biggest question and another thing is throughout his career Cristiano Ronaldo has encountered success in Manchester in Turin in Madrid uh, thanks to above all his confidence Mm -hmm. his ability to work hard but as well as his confidence in his own abilities and you look at this past few months you know where no Champions League team has made an offer for him, where he has struggled against lower-tier European opposition and England te- and Premier League teams, where he has looked physically outmatched, where he's looked a shadow of himself, where he has squandered some of the most basic opportunities imaginable. Overall, you know, you ask yourself... Is he going to be able to dig himself out of this hole before Cutter? I'm not so sure because he needs to find that confidence. Mm-hmm. And with this current situation at Ten Hag, where uh, at at Old Trafford with Eric Ten Hag, it's it's hard to see where he finds that. Here's the thing, Zach. Right, at any given football club, there's maybe five or six players that want to leave. At any given business, any office. The ratio is about the same. But there's certain rules in life that apply whether you're a professional athlete or whether you're an office worker or whatever. You usually don't leave a job or let that unhappiness really show that much where you're you're, you're getting in trouble because you're not complying with company rules and regulations and you're run the risk of getting sacked or fired um, until you have something absolutely concrete lined up. Now, Cristiano Ronaldo, I don't see, when I look at what he's doing, I don't see how, well, if you're George Mendes or people around him, you sit him down and you go, look, I know you desperately want to leave. I know you hate this place. I know every minute is a punishment. But the best solution for you is to shut up 
We'll get out in a few weeks. We'll get out in a few months. You can say what you want, but just shut up. Get some game time. Go to the World Cup. Because if you don't do that, then the only person that gets hurt in this is him. Because United want him out. And this has given them the excuse to do it. I mean, what he did in the summer gave Ten Hag all the authority he needed to do exactly what he's doing now. Made it really easy for him. And once you do that, you have to go. And I don't believe for one minute that United demanded he stayed. United did another striker, of course, right? But, you know, I, I, I don't think, uh, you know, like Roy Keane was saying, oh, United turned down offers for him. Well, maybe they turned down the Saudi Arabia offer or Ronaldo did. But every top club, you know, most of them come out and said they would no interest that he was linked with. Because you, you bring him in, he has to start. Every top club that has the potential to win the Champions League has a top-class striker that they aren't dropping for Ronaldo. Yep. So he's going to go somewhere and be on the bench in exactly the same situation. So if he just had to shut his mouth... I remember one time, Zach, Jose Mourinho being asked about a player, and it was in September. And I'm sure that this clip is online. And they asked him about a player claiming to be unhappy, saying there was a fire burning inside him and he wanted to leave. Mourinho said, well, it's a stupid fireball because we're in September. They can't leave to January, right? So this is the time to shut your mouth, get your head down, get on with it and play for a move, right? And if you can't play for a move, don't show that you're a potential problem inside a business, a football club. Because all you're doing is diminishing the reasons why and then removing the incentives for someone to buy you. And if I'm a potential purchaser of Cristiano Ronaldo, I'm looking at his behavior right now and going, do we really need this? Absolutely. So uh, I don't think there's much more to say on that, but um, ultimately at United he'd be forgiven by the fans over time. You know, there's a statue of George Best outside the stadium and George Best walked out in the football club for arguably much worse reasons than Ronaldo. So ultimately what will be, you know, the present moment defines the past. So a year from now, no one will be really focused on the way he left, just like they didn't the first time he left. Uh, what will be remembered will be his football, his goals, his brilliance, which was unbelievable. The best player I've ever seen at Manchester United, but... It is quite sad how this hap has happened. I want to also evolve a conversation to his Portuguese um, uh, uh, countryman, Jose Mourinho. Sorry, Jose. Phil, that is, I'm going to have to correct you, my friend. That is Jose Mourinho. Jose Mourinho. So I want to talk to you about him because um, this is a guy that is incredibly interesting. And thank you for correcting me on that. Um, <laughs> Because he is a guy that has reinvented himself. Extremely intelligent guy. If you look at the first Jose Mourinho when he came to Chelsea, this, this extremely confident young man labeled himself the special one. But then when he, by the time he got the enter, he said, I'm no longer the special one. So you can see that maturation happen. To a guy that was appearing in Stormzy videos. A guy who was, who's adored by the Roma fans. I know they lost this weekend, but he was labeled the emperor of Rome after the Europe Conference League final against Ferenoid. And one of the things that Mourinho is really, really smart at is he ingratiates himself with fans by understanding what really moves the needle for them, what matters, by identifying with club culture, and, and the hot buttons that really matter to fans. He's very, very smart that way. And I know that if you look at great managers in the past, we see constantly different iterations of them as they evolve with the times. And you have to do that. I think this iteration of, not quite grandfather Jose, uh, uh, Jose Mourinho, but a, a completely different iteration from what we've seen before. What, what's your take on him today? Listen, my take on Jose Mourinho is I think that, yes, he definitely has shown some signs of adaptation uh, over the past few, year and a half in, at Roma. But overall, I think that 
this has really been a smart move for Jose at this point in his career after unsuccessful spells uh, at Tottenham Hotspur and Manchester United. He needed a place where I think he needed to step out of the limelight, step out of the Premier League, and go to a club like Roma, who, mm-hmm. you know, like Mourinho, had, had gone from, you know, chasing the Scudetto, chasing glory, and being up there with the greats, uh, to, frankly, having this discussion of, you know, is this team washed up? Has, 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 do they need to go uh, and enter a new cycle? shall we say. Um, and I think that there were definitely some questions with regards to, to both of them. So a lot of times when a new manager has success at a club, it's because they you know, are at similar moments. And I think that we can definitely say the same about Mourinho and Roma. Roma fans, they wanted to feel like they belonged again in Italy's upper echelon and uh, fighting for European glory. And as we saw, Mourinho has achieved that, winning the first ever Europa Conference League. Um, Roma fans, they also wanted a manager with longevity. I think the past few years, uh, I've seen plenty of managers come and go, whether that's Eusebio Di Francesco, Paolo Fonseca. They want someone who's going to be able to spit, to stay two, three years. You know, We'll see how long Mourinho stays. But overall, I think this is a great chance for him to uh, rebuild at perhaps the midway point of his career, uh, you know, adapt at a club with far less spotlight. But, you know, despite despite not having as much uh, attention, still have it, having a worldwide fan base that stretches, you know, all across uh, continents. And I talked to actually my, Ro- my, my cousin who's a Roma fan, and he's just telling me, you know, how much he loves Mourinho, how much he's made him, you know, have more passion for the club in his uh, in the past year as a Roma fan. And as you mentioned, Phil, he's someone who definitely ingratiates himself to the fan base. And that's something that can, uh, you know, okay, it can hit or miss. We've seen it miss on plenty of occasions over the past few years. We've also seen it hit with Porto, Real Madrid, Chelsea, where you get the feeling that, you know, it's not just about, oh, yeah, I like this guy. He's doing a good job coaching my team. It's, I would go to war to, with this man. Yeah. Uh, the war, you know, it's it's me and Jose Mourinho and the rest of my fan base against the world, against the other referees um, and against all of these other uh, players. So I, I think that we've definitely seen that go overboard, especially in <laughs> recent matches. Uh, Roma, obviously, they they lost to Napoli at the weekend, but despite that, you know, Roma fans, I don't think they're they're caring as much about these uh, results, negative results, as they would in another manager because they do see the long term vision, right? And we've seen Mourinho capable of attracting the likes of Tammy Abraham, uh, Paolo Dybala, uh, Chris Smalling. So many, you know, impressive players who've been crucial parts of his project uh, at Roma. So they definitely see the long-term vision uh, that him and fellow Portuguese Thiago Pinto are building. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I have to give Mourinho credit for the way he has adapted, uh, especially in his methods towards man management and handling young players. He has done well to give uh, quite a few academy players uh, a shot in the first team. And overall, yeah, you are definitely seeing a strong spine being built at a Roma side that are competing both at Serie, in, at Serie A as well as the European level. Um, you know, likes of Lorenzo Pellegrini, Tammy Abraham, Andrea Bellotti, pulling Bellotti off on a free transfer. You know, I think that's a fantastic piece of business. Um, and overall, just kind of showing themselves... Yeah, you don't don't forget about us, okay? We still belong here in in Italy's greats, okay? And we're gonna we're gonna fight. Um, so yeah, I definitely think they needed a manager to to give themselves that confidence. And I think that Mourinho he needed that community that were willing to go to war with him. That you know he perhaps hadn't pissed off as as in London or Manchester. Um, and yeah, getting back to Syria, 
a, a league that perhaps suited his abilities more. So I credit him, and I think that he definitely has the potential to make this one of his most uh, successful moves in recent years. Still a lot of work to be done, though, and I do think that uh, given the caliber of players that Roma have brought in, remains to be seen if they get a midfielder in January following Jorginho Wijnaldum's injury. But uh, I, I think that with the caliber of players that they've brought in, they should definitely be targeting a deep European run as well as uh, challenging for top four. There's, you bring up a couple of really good points there. I think to be a great manager, great leader, or politician or whatever, the one skill you must have is you have to be a great orator. You have to be able to motivate people. You have to be able to reach people inside their souls and pull an extra percent out of them. And I think what Mourinho is really, really good at doing is creating enemies, adversaries. I mean, we, we know about his dogs of war with Inter, you know, with it, um, which is what he called them. But throughout his career, he always picks an enemy, whether it's Rafa Benitez or Wenger or remember when he first went to Spain with Pep and then the Tito Villanueva uh, incident um, where he, he poked him in the eye. And, um, you know, he, he, and he's always got an enemy and that motivates his players because they create he's brilliant at creating us against the world attitude and 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 that trench mentality especially if you're in a fight for a league title and i think psychological warfare is is massive at this level and he's a genius at it and i think that great managers have this you know ferguson had this you know you go out you go through the great managers and and they they always had an an adversary to 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 create that. I mean, even Messi, Ronaldo, they somewhat defend each other. You always have these great duels, and I think Mourinho, if you go through his career, has always had somebody, you know, as as a bogeyman, and and he's always been good at playing the the the, the bogeyman, bad man, um, uh, caricature, and he, and he's and this is what I'm talking about where. The Roma iteration of him is a bit more of a lovable grandfather <laughs> than the spiteful, you know, guy poking his finger at the Tito Villanueva's eye. Um, I think that um, he's such a smart guy. There's a great documentary, um, Coach's Voice, on Netflix. <laughs> There's an amazing story in there about Mourinho that I did not know. So he's telling this story about when he got uh, suspended by UEFA. And Chelsea were playing Barcelona, I think, at Stamford Bridge. And he was barred from the dressing room. He wasn't allowed anywhere near it. So he went into the dressing room about eight hours before the game, right? And hid in there and gives the team talk. Are you wait for go down to check the, um, the dressing room to see if he's there? Because they can't, they can't see him anywhere in the stadium. And he ends up getting hidden in a laundry cart, <laughs> in a box, locked inside this tiny box, uh, getting wheeled out by the Chelsea kit man past UEFA so that they couldn't find him. And uh, quite a harrowing experience to be locked inside a box, mind you, as he was saying. But I think that speaks to Mourinho's personality, where he wants to be with his soldiers before they go into battle, if that's a if that's not hyperbole, but I think back then that version of Jose Mourinho was, uh, Jose Mourinho was exactly like that. And uh, I, I think uh, when he's not your manager, like if you look at the game at the weekend, you know, no shots on target, that low block, maybe it's not the best football to watch and it's one of the biggest criticisms of him. Maybe not always fair, but, but um, not misplaced, I feel. But uh, he's the kind of guy you can love when he's somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> you anything to add to that? Look, I, I still think that despite the connection that he has built with the Roma communi- community, he still has work to do as he uh, attempts to convince the world that he is still one of the best managers in football, okay? We have seen it get ugly at Tottenham and Manchester United. And the fact is, Mourinho has not really been able to uh, you know, go against the odds and grab a major silverware um, in for quite a few years. So I think that 
that's going to be the ultimate test. You know, can he compete in, in an increasingly competitive uh, Serie A? You look at Napoli at the top of the table, got Milan, Atalanta, uh, Inter, Udinese, so many clubs uh, fighting it out, Lazio. Um, so that's going to be a massive test for Mourinho. Like I said, they have the caliber of players to finish in the top four and return to the Champions League. Can they stay consistent, though? Can they continue their development? Uh, that's going to be a massive question for me. Uh, but overall, I do think that they are a bit weak in the middle of the pitch. I look at that area with, with Wijnaldum injured. You've got Brian Cristante, Nemanja Matic, uh, new arrival Mari Kamara from Olympiacos. Not many great options. Uh, so I do think that is an area where they could be reinforcing in the January window. Uh, last part of the show. One of the things you do quite well, Zach, on BTL, Breaking the Lines, is profiling young players across the world. And I always enjoy that. Uh, it's always interesting. I'm going to ask you about two young players uh, that have been making the headlines in the last week. And one is Jude Bellingham and one is Valverde at Real Madrid, Federico Valverde. Um, <clears throat> Federico Valverde has had a sensational season this season. Uh, really mature as a footballer. Excellent young midfielder. As Jude Bellingham was called at the weekend by Pep Guardiola, the complete package. Uh, he has everything. Remarkable maturity for a 19-year-old. Um, unbelievable player. And uh, are we looking at the two best young midfielders in Europe? Am I leaving someone out here? I definitely think that we're looking at two of them for sure. Um, you know, you look at other players, I would probably throw in Pedri. I, I think that yeah, he's Gavi, done. Yeah, Pedri, Gavi. Yeah. You know, maybe not Gavi, but I think that... No? Well, maybe. I, I honestly would not have given Gavi the Golden Boy Award, but that's for another discussion. Yeah, well, I want to uh, get into that at some point. It's I, being cleaned up again. But, <laughs> but yeah, Valverde and Bellingham, I do think they are definitely staking a claim. Uh, I would also throw in Aurelien Chouameni. He's having a phenomenal season uh, at Real Madrid so far. There are a few other names for sure that you could uh, opt for. I think Vitinha at Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, plenty of others that I'd throw in. But um, but yeah, those are two names that I think for sure they, they are definitely going to be uh, competing out as the best midfielder in world football over the next few years. And looking at Federico Valverde, man, what a campaign he is having for Real Madrid. Um, I think there were a lot of question marks going into this season for Real Madrid. You know, they went from doing everything they could to sign Kylian Mbappe on free transfer to not getting a single attacking reinforcement and trusting their guys, trusting Rodrigo, Federico, Valverde, and Vinicius to make that step up. And they have done so. And that has been a massive reason why Real Madrid are the last remaining uh, undefeated team in Europe alongside Benfica, Napoli, um, and Paris Saint-Germain. And in my opinion, I think they've only gotten better under Carlo Ancelotti in these opening mm -hmm. weeks. For me, they look a lot more organized, a lot more comfortable. I think that midfield, uh, for me, that was a big weak point of theirs in the opening weeks of last season. A lot of question marks about Tony Cruz's form. Uh, and Casemiro, Luka Modric, but Cruz, my God, he is playing some of his best football yet. And I, I have to say, secretly hoping, hoping that uh, he extends his contract for another year. It seems like he knows he is playing his final year at the Santiago Bernabeu. I know that he rejected a contract extension at the end of last season because he wanted to evaluate how he was at the end of last season. At the end of this season. Um, and see how he was doing it. I believe 32, 33. Um, but, my God, what a footballer. For me, one of the best midfielders of the past decade and been so important alongside Aurelien Chouameni and Federico Valverde and Luka Modric in this midfield. Valverde, though, he is like three players in one. He's a player who's going to win back possession in the final 30s, a player who's going to uh, march through 
five different opponents and score a wonder goal, as we've seen so many times this season. Player was becoming increasingly lethal in the final third. And yeah, overall, it's just a box-to-box dynamo who's really exploding in this wide midfielder role. Um, I have nothing but positive things to say about him. <laughs> yeah, he's been fantastic. Um, really emerging as some... Uh, I mean, he's been promising this for a while, um, but both uh, Valverde and uh, Bellingham and Pedri, of course, are such promising, exciting young players. And... I mean, it's still frightening when you think that dude Bellingham was 17. I asked, I, I interviewed Harry Redknapp and asked him about, because he gave Jude Bellingham his debut, and I asked him about him, and he said to me, I gave Frank Lampard his debut. Jude Bellingham is the best midfielder I've ever seen at that age in my life. And he wow. goes, uh, that, and, and, and so that gives you an idea of how highly he was rated at 16. Of course, his younger brother also coming through the ranks now at Birmingham. We will go ahead and leave it there, folks. There's a lot uh, we will get to in the next week. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the Ballon d'Or and whether um, there is some favoritism towards Spain or whether we can say that Spain has the best players, but arguably the Premier League is the strongest league as uh, competitive balance. I don't know. Uh, it's just a suggestion. I could be wrong on that. You, I'll get your opinion on that, Zach. We'll also start taking a look at the World Cup very soon. Um, I can't remember a World Cup I've looked forward to less um, used to be the World Cup filled up those blank summers and now we've got to suspend the Premier League and the waning interest in, in, in international football in certain regions is uh, indicative of the indifference that a lot of people feel towards international football uh, certainly I can I, I share that uh, but I know there's certain parts of the world that don't as like you look at South America, Africa, they're still very, very much into international football. Uh, I can't say that it's something that holds particular great interest to me, but we'll start looking at the head of the World Cup. Uh, and then I want to find out from you if you think this is the year that City could win the Champions League. To me, they're the most obvious outstanding team that could win it. Uh, Real Madrid, of course, um, would be a legitimate threat to them, but I just feel maybe... This is City's year, and then of course we'll talk about Erling Haaland. Exercise that 200 million clause because it looks to me like Erling Haaland's father has a very clear directive on a direction on where he wants his son to go, and every move he makes, the next one's already planned. We shall see. Uh, don't forget, folks, check out this guy at BTL at Zach Lowy. Uh, fantastic content as always. Uh, always a pleasure to do this show with you, my friend, and enjoy the rest of your week, mate. Absolute pleasure as always, Phil. Thanks, Aggie. Take care, buddy. Bye.